0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell, brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
2: We've been working uh, towards having some sort of a deal with North Korea for many, many years. And we had deals with North Korea. Just every single deal fell apart over verification. Now the key question is whether priorities should be verifiably capping their fissile material and, and capping their program. I think Biden administration should be at least open to potentially having some sort of a deal. But it all depends on how North Koreans react in the immediate term, I think we need to send a signal to North Korea to not conduct a provocation, to not return to the early days of Obama when President Obama came to the office and North Korea conducted a series of provocations. So we need to send a message uh, to North Koreans to, to buy some time. Because once they conduct this provocation, we have no option. to just continue with sanctions. I was somebody who who was always for maximum pressure. And I still believe that we need to put pressure on this until there is a deal that we can live with. We need North Korea to at least give us some sort of inventory of its nuclear program to show that they, they intend to even freeze or cap their program. And they need to agree to international verification. Otherwise, we'll be trading sanctions, concessions in return for nothing.
1: Sumi Terry is a senior fellow on Korea at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She served as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency from 2001 to 2008, and she was director for Korea, Japan, and Oceanic Affairs at the National Security Council under both Presidents George Bush and Barack Obama. Sue has been on our program many times before, talking about issues related to the Korean Peninsula. We just caught up with Sue to talk again about North Korea. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters.
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash impact.
1: Sue, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show again.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: I don't know. I I actually forget the number of times you've been on, two, three, or four, but it's... it's, uh, it's terrific to have you back. Sue, so this episode is part of a series of episodes that we're doing between the election and the inauguration on the key national security issues facing our nation. And obviously, one of those is North Korea. So let me start by asking you to give us sort of a 50,000 foot summary of where. President Obama left the North Korea issue in January of 2017, and what happened during the Trump administration, just to bring everybody kind of up to speed?
2: Right. So President Obama pursued what the administration called strategic patience policy. President Obama did not really talk to Kim Jong-un. There was not a active conversation or negotiation towards the end. Uh, he pursued sanctions policy primarily because, you know, I think it was Bob Gates a long time ago said, we're not going to buy the same horse for the third time, meaning that, you know, we were, we negotiated with North Korea. We had a great framework in the, during the Clinton administration. We had six-party talks during the Bush administration. And we're just not going to just return to negotiations. And and we wanted to get away, President Obama and the administration wanted to get away from this kind of cycle that North Korea was engaged in, this provocation, uh, and then negotiation, get concessions, provocation, get, you know, this whole provocation cycle. So... North Korea remained, uh, you know, they kept building their nuclear missile program. That's one criticism of the strategic patience policy, because it didn't stop North Korea from building uh, its nuclear missile program. So when President Trump came in, uh, he pursued what he called maximum pressure policy, really uh, tightening sanctions, uh, and going, you know, and the whole idea was to pressure and squeeze North Korea. And you remember, It was a lot of uh, fire and fury rhetoric and calling Kim Jong-un rocket man on a suicide mission. And, you know, we even saw China actually really uh, implementing sanctions in the fall of 2017, which was surprising to a lot of Korea watchers. Uh, So we saw even China actually doing more on pressuring North Korea, probably because uh, China was stressed that the Trump administration might actually uh, go in the route of, you know, even a preventive strike. Uh, uh, Remember, there was three intercontinental ballistic missile tests, ICBM tests, uh, six nuclear tests in 2017. But just when, you know, we we, we, at the end of 2017, early 2018, then all of a sudden, Kim Jong-un abruptly shifted to diplomacy and symmetry, starting with participating in the Winter Olympics in South Korea, which then, of course, then paved the way to uh, having these summits, starting with the Singapore summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. So we had maximum pressure policy in 2017, shifting to summitry and diplomacy. President Trump and Kim Jong-un met three times. But at the end of the day, their nuclear and missile program uh, are even more advanced, and we have not made any progress on the denuclearization front.
1: So, Sue, where are we today? How would you characterize the threat? How would you characterize the relationship between the United States and North Korea, the relationship between North Korea and South Korea? Where are we?
2: Well, President Trump and Kim Jong-un actually have a personal relationship, it seems. Uh, They've exchanged many love letters, right? Uh, Beautiful letters. But if you followed uh, this parade that they just held, the North Koreans on October 10th, and what we saw in that parade it was quite significant. It was really something unprecedented on many levels. Uh, we saw more North Korean technology, both conventional and WMD, than ever before, right? We, it, it was truly impressive. Uh, we saw everything from, you know, this new technology, anti-air defense radar system, to anti-tank guided missiles, to SLBM, and of course, this new strategic weapon that Kim Jong-un said himself that he was going to reveal this year, which turned out to be indeed a monster-sized, very large ICBM. Korea Watchers are now calling it Hwasong-16, which is the largest liquid-propellant road-mobile ICBM anywhere in the world, uh, with capacity to hold as much as triple the payload. So my point is the program, the nuclear missile program, made incredible progress North Korea made incredible progress in the in past several years on their nuclear missile program and their delivery system. And, and the main message there, I think, for, from the North Koreans, what they're trying to say is that they made these impressive breakthroughs despite sanctions on North Korea, despite the very difficult domestic situation that they are in right now in terms of economically with sanctions and these measures they took to prevent COVID and typhoons and whatnot. The message that North Koreans were sending is that time is on their side. And in fact, Kim Jong-un himself gave this very emotional speech saying that time is by our side, meaning on the North Korean side. So, you know, there is a personal relationship between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, but their nuclear missile program made, uh, they made incredible progress on that front. And in terms of North Korea, South Korea relationship, you know, President Moon Jae-in really wants to make progress. He is desperate to make, have a big breakthrough with North Korea. But at the end of the day, unless there's a, a breakthrough between United States and North Korea, there's only a, a, there's a limit to what South Koreans can do, right? Because they can't really make the they they can't open this joint Kaesong industrial complex, uh and because of sanctions, that's that's international sanctions that's in place. So. President Moon is very frustrated, and South Koreans feel they don't have a whole lot of time left right now to make progress on North Korea.
1: So, Sue, let me ask about North Korean intentions here, and let me kind of break it into two sub questions. The first is How does Kim Jong un see us? And has that changed at all, do you think, in the last four years? And second, what does he see, do you think, as the strategic purpose? of having nuclear weapons and ICBMs to deliver them?
2: Well, let me answer the latter question first uh, because that's easier uh, to answer. I think from Kim Jong-un's perspective uh, or North Korean perspective, they pursued nuclear weapons for a very long time. This program really began in the 50s and they continued in the 60s and 70s, 80s. It, it, they pursued it for a very long time because they see it as uh, the ultimate deterrence, right? Against the United States, even a superpower like the United States cannot attack North Korea uh, if they are armed with the ultimate weapon, nuclear weapons. So they pursue nuclear weapons uh, for deterrence perspective. They want—I think what they truly want. There is overarching goal is uh, its regime survival, and nuclear weapons serve that purpose because they can, with nuclear weapons, they can deter United States or any other threat. Nuclear weapons also give. Kim Jong-un right now in North Korea's regime legitimacy, uh, you know, they also, it's, a, it's a rallying card. Like they can also, with nuclear weapons, rally the people. It also it gives a source of pride also for the North Koreans. Uh, it also justifies all the deprivations that the North Korean people have to go through because they have like at least our nuclear weapons power. It also gives North Korea prestige, I mean, what is North Korea without nuclear weapons? Right. It's hundred ninety seventh, eighth ranked economy in the world. Without nuclear weapons, uh, what are they? what is it? I mean, you, we, nobody would pay attention. So they have influence in regional affairs or possibly world affairs because they have nuclear weapons. Finally, I would say they also, you know, in terms of conventional power, they've already lost to South Korea, and South Korea is an ultimate rival state that exists just south of the border. So in that rivalry, uh, you also need to have nuclear weapons because that's the only way they can also beat South Korea, if you will. So there are a whole host of reasons why they've been pursuing nuclear weapons. In terms of your first question on how the North Korea sees the United States, I think fundamentally, of course, the United States is number one threat. Uh, they call the United States a number one hostile country uh, to North Korea. But I think they don't trust the Americans. I, I had North Koreans actually tell me this in 1.5-track meetings that even when they have a deal with the United States, they know that the administration changed and the policy could you know change. Uh, they had this experience of, under the Clinton administration. They had 1994-agreed framework. Kim Jong-il uh, was supposed to even come to the United States, or Clinton was supposed to go to North Korea, actually. To have a meeting, but time ran out, and the Bush administration came in. And from North Korean perspective, Bush administration pursued a so-called hardline policy, and everything fell apart. Which is, of course, not true because we also found out at that time, around 2002, that North Korea was pursuing uranium enrichment program separately. But they have, so funda- there's a fundamental trust uh, issue on both sides. They don't trust us, and obviously we don't trust them because we had, you know, this is multiple administrations. We have tried almost everything under the sun when it comes to North Korea, bilateral talks, multilateral talks. We had agreements with North Korea. So I think there's a trust deficit between United States and North Korea.
1: So, Sue, I want to get to what you think we need to do vis-a-vis North Korea, but one can't, in my mind, put together at least – an effective strategy if one doesn't know what the goals and objectives are, right, of that strategy. So what do you think those should be? What do you think our policy objectives should be vis-a-vis North Korea? Is it just denuclearization or is it broader than that? How do you think about the goals and objectives question?
2: It's really hard because... I think we should not give up denuclearization as a goal, seeking denuclearization of of North Korea as a goal, but I'm not sure if it's achievable, uh, because I think almost everybody can agree that North Korea is not going to give up their nuclear weapons. I don't see a scenario in which they will give it up, even with maximum sanctions of you know placed on North Korea. The most we can get out of North Korea. Is some sort of a deal that caps their program, or at least they say they will give it up. But we know they they have some nuclear weapons and they keep them, and that's okay with us. I mean, that's so that's a realistic uh, goal. But I think I think that's something still worth pursuing. Longer term, I do think we need to pay attention to potentially seeking unification of the Korean Peninsula. Not not that we actively seek it because it's up to the the two Koreas, obviously. But I think we need to think strategically about whether unified Korea is in United States interest, which I do think it is. So that's sort of a long term goal that we should, you know, keep in mind.
1: Okay, so with all that as background, right? What do you think we should do? What should be our strategy? What should be our approach? What would you advise a President Biden, to do about North Korea?
2: So it's North Korea, for the listeners, uh, I, you know, I, I, it's restating the obvious, but it's truly a difficult case. So even the most well-intentioned folks can't come to an agreement. We've been working uh, towards having some sort of a deal with North Korea for many, many years. And we had deals with North Korea. Just every single deal fell apart over verification. Now the key question is whether priority should be verifiably capping their fissile material and and, and capping their program. Because as I told you, you know, the, they've been making tremendous advancement under both nuclear and missile program. Uh, so whether we should go for a freeze deal. I think Biden administration should be at least open to potentially having some sort of a deal. But it all depends on how North Koreans react, right, going forward. I'm very very concerned that North Koreans will revert to provocation now that you know we have pre- uh, president elect Biden there is always a provocation cycle right uh, this historically north Koreans have always there was a provocation that's that's uh, bracketed around uh, this uh, election and you know historically the north Koreans like to conduct a provocation to get attention of washington to gain leverage in negotiation so i'm so concerned that they will test uh, this Hwasong-16 missile that we saw on, uh, or technology that's related to this missile uh, that we saw on October 10th. And in that case, we we have no other option but to continue uh, with sanctions, trying to implement sanctions, trying to get the country's implementations, I mean, that's, you know, so I think on one hand, it depends, but I guess my answer is, it depends on North, North Korea's reaction. So on, in the immediate term, I think we need to send a signal to North Korea to not Conduct a provocation, do not return to the early days of Obama when President Obama came into the office and North Korea conducted a series of provocations uh, in the first four months of the Obama administration, which led to the certifications. So we need to send a message uh, to North Koreans to to buy some time. Because once they conduct this provocation, we have no option to just continue sanctions. So and meanwhile, we should be open to possibly having a, a some sort of dialogue uh, with North Korea, uh, starting with working-level talks. I don't think the Biden administration would be eager to engage in any kind of summitry or pageantry or theatrics. I think that will be very different with President Biden. He will be m- in more in favor of pursuing a traditional working-level diplomacy, empowering negotiators. And I think that's the right approach, having sort of extending hand out to North Koreans to say, we are interested in restarting talks. But it really also depends on North Korea's reaction and how they conduct themselves in the next week's months to come.
1: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Sumi Terry. seems to me and, and and please correct me if if you think i don't have this right it seems to me like we've got two options here one is some sort of a freeze i want to come back to that some sort of a freeze deal and then the other is just keeping the maximum pressure on and demanding demanding denuclearization you know i don't believe there's a military option here in terms of disarming them I'd like to get your take on that too but why does it make sense to go down the, the freeze approach, some sort of negotiation that gets us somewhere, and that freezes their program, vice just keeping the pressure on, vice some sort of military option, which I don't think exists, but I'd like to hear what you think.
2: I, I don't think military option exists in the Korean Peninsula, so I can't even contemplate that. That's, it. I mean, we're not, we're not going to necessarily say that. We always have to say all options are on the table, but realistically, military option is not on the table just because of the consequence of having a conflict on the Korean Peninsula. It's just enormous. Um, I was somebody who, pers- who was always for maximum pressure. I thought that was the best approach. And I still believe that we need to put pressure on this until there is a deal that we can live with. There is no other option. It's the only leverage we got. The issue is we need for maximum pressure to work. And it did sort of work in 2017 before President Trump just abruptly shifted. I wish we actually continued maximum pressure minus the rhetoric in 2017 because we actually had China and other countries implementing sanctions. Problem now going forward is that, particularly given U.S.-China conflict and the Cold War uh, between U.S. and China, why would China be any, you know, have any incentive to implement sanctions? We've already seen loosening of uh, sanctions implementation, so this was a problem of just turning to diplomacy and symmetry and just meeting with Kim Jong Un without having really have you know, worked out all the problems because now Xi Jinping has met with Kim Jong un four times. And actually China North Korea relationship uh is is, you know, better than ever. Uh, just recently, you know, they've exchanged letters between Xi Jinping and Kim Jong un with the and rhetoric around the Korean War was very positive and so this is a closer relationship, and so sanctions is not going to truly get North Korea to come back unless sanctions are implemented like Iran-style sanctions, right? Secondary boycott, implementation of sanctions, really hard sanctions, uh, like we did with Iran. It took about three years of really hard sanctions in Iran for Iran to turn to uh, to to get back to negotiation. So you know that's sort of the problem. So now, but to summarize what I'm saying. I still think we have to put maximum pressure until there is a deal that is that we can live with. And what is that? I'm also a little bit more hardline than a lot of folks that says we just need any kind of cap deal. I don't. I think for us to even have a freeze deal, we have to get a couple of things, which is going to be very hard to get. Which is, I hope, and this is gonna be the hard part, we need North Korea. To at least give us some sort of inventory of its nuclear program, to show that they they intend to even freeze or cap their program, and they need to agree to international verification. Otherwise, we'll be trading sanctions concessions in return for nothing. Right, right. We need to get something, but that's going to be hard. So, in theory, I think we can get to a first deal, but it's it, it of course it's going to be a hard road to even get there. And until we get there, we don't really have this brilliant solution that's out there that no one has ever thought of. The only thing we can do is continue to apply pressure until we can get to this kind of deal that we, it's at least a starting point.
1: So Sue, if they were willing, you know, if they got to a point where they were willing to give us a verifiable declaration of what they have, both in terms of the nuclear program and their missile program, and if they agreed to a verifiable freeze of those programs, would you be willing to get rid of all the sanctions or just part of them? How do you think about what we would be willing to do in return for a verifiable freeze?
2: And you are asking the toughest questions possible. And this is this is the problem. Because the chief challenge for us is that North Korea is highly unlikely to agree to any sort of agreement that does not include maximal sanctions relief. Uh, and they are going to try to do that without offering the kind of verification that will be needed, even for a nuclear freeze deal. This is why the talks in Hanoi fell apart, President Trump and Kim Jong-un's meeting in Hanoi, because the Yongbyon nuclear facility, which the North Koreans offered us, wasn't important, but it was only one of many North Korean uh, facilities, and you know, we 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 just felt that it was not good enough to give, give North Koreans this maximum sanctions relief that they are looking for. So, no, I I don't think we have to, we need to, we can lift all the sanctions. Maybe we can, if we can get verifiable, if we can can get international verification, they give us a true declaration and we can get international inspectors in to verify, we have to, you know, maybe we can agree to significant sanctions relief, not all, you know, I have to think about exactly how many. Right, right somewhere between, you know, what they want and what we're willing to give, because what they're going to ask for is maximal sanctions relief.
1: What about what about normalization of relations? Is that something you would consider?
2: Yes. And I don't think, you know, at least peace declaration, not peace treaty. Peace declaration is mostly symbolic to say the war is over. It, it, in changing liaison offices, that kind of thing is not, it's, it's mostly symbolic. And, you know, but I, I do think the U.S. Uh, the Trump administration was ready to sort of offer that in Hanoi, uh, exchange of liaison offices and peace declaration. But what the North Koreans wanted was sanctions relief. So that's the problem. And that's what the negotiators have to figure out, how much of a sanctions relief to give North Korea for um, internationally verifiable freeze of their nuclear program. So the problem of just just doing sanctions and not talking to them and not considering the cap is that, as we've seen in the past few years, they have really advanced their nuclear missile program. Right. Which the more. You know, they they they're going to mass produce, and that's going to be a problem because we have to worry about the proliferation risk of that.
1: Right. So how do you think about right if 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 we end up with a deal? a freeze deal, verifiable, right? It, it It's exactly what we want. And we provide at least some sanctions relief, maybe significant sanctions relief, maybe not complete. But how do you think about the signal that that sends to other countries that North Korea at the end of the day was successful here in getting what it wanted?
2: Oh, it's a terrible message. But there's no perfect solution. It's a terrible message because you're sending a signal and a message to all the rogue countries out there who want to suppress nuclear weapons that all you have to do is just keep at it and they will get to basically getting international acceptance of North Korea as a nuclear weapons power, right? Because what the North Koreans want is arms control negotiation but be treated like a nuclear weapons power. So it's not a great message. So I'm not suggesting this is a this is a great solution. Right. There is no great solution there is no good solution at all right but all i'm saying now is that i have shifted a little bit from just maximum pressure secondary boycott and all of that to realistically just considering we should consider and this is what the Biden administration needs to do they need to have they will have policy review and they need to consider whether it's worthwhile to give some targeted sanctions relief well in order to determine what that is in exchange for a genuine freeze of North's nuclear missile program, whether that is warranted, as an interim first step with the goal of moving toward verified dismantlement of some important facilities and nuclear weapons, and whether this is better than allowing the North to grow its program unchecked, as it is currently doing. So that's the deliberation.
1: So, Sue, walk me through... How the other key countries here, China, South Korea, Japan, Russia, to the extent that they're a player, would think about what you just outlined, right? The keep the maximum pressure campaign until they're willing to have a serious negotiation about a freeze and our willingness to discuss, right, with them a freeze, verifiable freeze in return for sanctions. How would each of those countries think about that?
2: In general, I think all countries in the region will welcome that, except Japan, right? So South Koreans, are, the Moon administration actually doesn't even want to, for us to be this hard about, oh, we need a verifiable declaration, international inspector. I mean, they, they really want a deal. That's, that's very candidly speaking, that's where they are uh, with North Koreans. They want to make a progress with North Koreans. They want to make a breakthrough. And they will even say, oh, you, you know, you're demanding too much because North Koreans are never going to give a verifiable declaration and so on. They're already pushing for sanctions relief. So the Buna administration is already there. China, Russia, they've been already pressing for sanctions relief. When North Korea has not done anything, they have not taken one step towards denuclearization the and they've been already... Uh, pressing for sanctions relief last year, when they even put a draft UN resolution, I mean, they they were seeking uh, sanctions relief. So they are going to be on the. So I think the region is they would they want to deal with North Korea. Now, of course, Japan is the one country that doesn't want that. Uh, Japan is arguably even more hardline than the United States and former Prime Minister Abe. You know, when you read Bolton's memoir and so on, like you can see that he is the one who sort of whispered to President Trump's ear to say we have to stand strong. We cannot have another bad deal with North Korea. So they will remain hard line on this because, you know, they have what they are worried about repeated cycles of missiles and, you know, nuclear testing. Obviously, all the missiles fly over Japan. They're worried about their abduction issue, right, Um, that they've been always concerned about, you know, not having made any kind of progress on, on the abduction issue, the 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 kidnap the North Koreans kidnapping of Japanese citizens during the 70s and 80s, you know, this this still remains a top priority for Japan. So they would not want the US to give any kind of sanctions relief or sign onto any kind of bad free deal. I think the region is united except Japan in terms of wanting some sort of breakthrough. And South Korea, China and Russia are going to push for us uh, accepting sort of uh, not even the kind of deal that I outlined with a verifiable declaration and all that, just sort of any kind of deal would be good for them.
1: So Sue, I want to come back to what a point you raised earlier, which I think is really, really important. You know, my sense, and and I'd love to get yours, my sense is that Kim was sort of behaving himself vis-a-vis Donald Trump because he felt that he still had some hope of convincing President Trump to do sanctions relief without having to give give up much of his program. But with President Biden coming in now and President Biden at least sounding right now that he might go back to President Obama's strategy of just kind of ignoring them, it does raise the risk right, of North Korean provocation. And so what would your advice be to the administration with regard to reaching out to North Korea, signaling them in some way that we have to go through a policy review here and, you know, we're going to do that. And then we're going to have an idea of where we're going to be vis-a-vis you guys. And we'll talk to you about it. Is there some way to manage this so that they don't do a provocation in the short term, just because they think President Biden is going to go back to where President Obama was?
2: Yes, I think that's important. And I, at least we have a communication channel with North Koreans and South Koreans actually here can play a role because South Koreans are very concerned that there will be a provocation and then we'll basically go back to strategic patience 2.0. So South Koreans have been already talking to North Koreans. So there is a lot of ways to convey that message that just sort of hold on, uh, you know, let's not repeat what happened in the, during the Obama administration. You know, when Vice Pres- well, President-elect Biden now, he went in his uh, debate, the third debate with President Trump, called Kim Jong-un a thug. I'm sure North Koreans are not happy with that. But I was surprised to see that North Koreans didn't come back with, didn't at least come back with this horrible rhetoric that normally comes out of North Korea. So maybe they're also just sort of waiting and seeing what happens. And President-elect Bi- Biden also wrote an op-ed, I don't know if you saw, but very unusual up in or Korean news outlet, Yonhap, recently talking about alliance issues and whatever, and his tone was milder than the the one he used in uh, during the debate mm. so I think already there is a sort of signaling being sent, and I think this is critical the short the in the short term, the first step is to prevent North Korea from conducting a major provocation, so we can at least see what is possible right now, can I just clarify? in terms of sanctions like i i am very wary of rushing into it. not a good deal with premature sanctions relief right because history shows us you know we, the kim this family you know they've been tempted to cheat or well, they did cheat on any deal right and so if we grant premature sanctions relief and we are not going to get anything we're not even going to get a genuine halt to north korea's nuclear missile program so we we do have to be very careful so when I was suggesting some sort of a deal with, you know, at least explore it, I'm still talking about achieving a genuine halt to North Korea's nuclear missile program, not one that say they will do that, Right. and we don't even get that,
1: Right. because right.
2: then we don't have anything.
1: Right. That's a really important point. So, Sue, if you could tell President-elect Biden one thing about North Korea that we haven't already talked about here what would it be?
2: He understands a lot about North Korea. He understands foreign policy. He understands North Korea. So I'm hard-pressed to find something that he's not going to really know about North Korea.
1: And if you could tell, this is, a, this is an even harder question, I'm sorry, but if you could tell Kim Jong-un one thing about America, what would it be?
2: Wow, you're asking really hard questions today. <laughs> ultimately, maybe this is not necessarily about America, but ultimately he cannot achieve... The desired goal, goal. I mean, it's not just beyond regime survival. I believe that Kim Jong-un is different from his father and grandfather in that sense that it's beyond regime survival. I do think he wants a better economy for North Korea. He's a young man. He wants to rule for many, many decades. But that's fundamentally never going to happen as long as he just keeps this nuclear program. Like I, so I don't know. It's it's they needed. To, I think Kim Jong Un lost an opportunity with President Trump. It's truly was an op, There was an opportunity there. I think he, the fear is driving North Korea thinking that because of examples like Libya, what happened with Gaddafi, right. that we, you United States, cannot be trusted. But we have no desire to invade North Korea or attack North Korea. So I think that's what he needs to think about. But I don't know how he would we can ever convince the North Koreans of that. That we'll never treat North Korea like Libya or Iraq. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a fundamentally different situation.
1: Do you see at all any maturing of him as he gets older and has more experience?
2: Well, I have, what we, what is, what, I'm not sure about maturing necessarily, but it is clear that we cannot also simply say North Korean, North Korean regime, and they're always this way, because I do think Kim Jong-un is different from his father. Even just the speech, maybe it was just being, a, he was being very shrewd, but this speech that he gave on October 10th, he was emotional. He was almost teary. Maybe that's just being a shrewd leader. But, you know, he, he, he's savvy. He's, he's different. Uh, I think he's we've seen with the last three Trump-Kim summits and meetings, I do think he's a smart guy. I think we, the Korea watchers, have underestimated him when he first came into power. Right, right. The whole way. I think he's savvy. I think he's different. And so I'm not sure about necessarily maturing, and I don't know what he thinks right now. He did have truly a, a unique opportunity with President Trump and I'm sorry that they didn't, you know, from North Korean perspective, they should have went for a deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sue, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, it's a fascinating discussion and look forward to more in the future. That was Sumi Terry. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit CBSNews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.